Well, good morning, and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. If you're here today, you don't have a Bible, um, feel free to take the Bible that's in the pew in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 695, 695. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 9 looking at verses 15 through 22 this morning. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. And if you will stand with me as we honor the reading of the Word of God this morning. Hebrews chapter 9. We begin in verse 15 and go through verse 22. The author of Hebrews, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded me for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Father, help us to understand your word this morning. Please grant me clarity in a difficult passage. I pray that we'll see Christ above all, and may you be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Why are Christians so obsessed with blood? Blood is, metaphorically speaking, splattered on almost every page of our Bible. Listen to the description of one book I found on Amazon. It's entitled, Obsessed with Blood. The crazy things Christians believe. Now, this was written by an unbeliever. Christians are obsessed with blood. They sing about it, declare they are washed in it, and even drink it. In this book, you will discover the crazy background to this Christian obsession and the truth about the bloodthirsty God they claim to know and serve. You will discover why God loves blood and why he demanded the sacrifice of animals and even humans to satisfy his bloodlust. The stories of blood sacrifice in the Bible are just another example of Christianity propagating Bronze Age myths, believing them to be divinely inspired truths. They are not. Well, the author is partially right. We talk about blood a lot. We just finished singing, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. What? 
there is a fountain filled with blood and the sinners who bathe in this blood are cleansed of their sins. And that's far from the only song about blood sung in Christian churches. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you or evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Or, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We talk about, we sing about blood a lot. Our second president, John Adams, once called Christianity the most bloody religion. But if you were raised in the Christian faith, or maybe you've been a Christian for a while, you may have become accustomed or desensitized to just how much we talk about blood and the way in which we talk about blood. But for new Christians or for unbelievers, this may strike them as odd, perhaps disconcerting. One of the earliest accusations against Christians in the Roman Empire was that they were cannibals who drank blood. Now, of course, this was a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper by the unbelievers. And yet it should still remind us that to those outside the church, this emphasis on blood is bizarre and seems to be an obsession. French Enlightenment philosopher Voltaire gave his summary this way. Christianity is the most ridiculous, the most absurd and bloody religion that has ever infected the world. So, why all the blood? This is a question for which we have to have an answer. And if we say, well, it's Because Jesus died a bloody death. We still have to answer that question. Why did Jesus have to die a bloody death? Well, for our sins. Why? Why did he have to die a bloody death for our sins? We must have answers to these questions. And it's to these questions... But the author of Hebrews now turns to answer. In chapter 8 of Hebrews, we saw the need for a new covenant. There's something wrong with the people, and so God is going to establish a new covenant, and he's going to write his law in the hearts of the people. He's going to give them free, open access to God. They will be his, his people. He will be their God. They will all know him in an intimate, relational way because all of their sins will be forgiven. Now, chapter 9 is unpacking why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. If there's a new covenant, there has to be an old covenant. The old covenant at Mount Sinai that, that God established with the people through Moses. 
this new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And that's what chapter 9 is all about. And so in verses 1 through 10, we, we saw a few weeks ago the weaknesses of the old covenant with its earthly tabernacle and its, its earthly rituals. Last week in verses 11 through 14, we saw the reason that we can have confidence in the new covenant because Jesus has entered the very presence of God, making a superior sacrifice through his blood, which actually purifies our consciences from dead works in order that we might serve the living God. And now in verses 15 through 22, the writer addresses the question, why? Why blood? Why blood? And how? How can Jesus' blood do anything for us? We sing, there's power in the blood. What do we mean? How can Jesus' blood do anything for us? How is there power in the blood? And can we really put our hopes in a covenant where the one who instituted the covenant died a bloody death? Remember, the, the author of Hebrews, he's addressing first century Christians who, through persecution and and trials and suffering and hardships, they're being tempted to abandon the church, abandon Christ, and go back to the the Old Testament way of worshiping in the the temple with the priests and the animal sacrifices. And guess what? The priests that serve in the temple, they don't die. How can we put our faith in one who has died? Why does he have to die a bloody death? And what we'll see in these eight verses is that Jesus' bloody death was absolutely necessary for the new covenant. That, that his, his death, rather than it being, a, it's not a failure, it actually accomplished the purposes for which it was intended. We're going to see that the Old Testament actually prepared Israel to receive these truths. And that you can have absolute confidence in Jesus and in his new covenant you can put all of your hope for today and for forever in Christ because of his blood. So I hope this passage will not only remind you of the necessity and the power of Jesus' death, but it will also assist you in talking to family members and friends and co-workers about our obsession with blood. So, Turning back to our passage, verses 15 through 22, we're going to see three reasons why Jesus' bloody death was necessary for the new covenant. Three reasons why Jesus' bloody death was necessary for the new covenant. Look at verse 15. Jesus' bloody death was necessary so that God's people would receive all the blessings. It was so God's people would receive all the blessings. Look at verse 15. He writes, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That word, therefore, needs to cause us to ask the question, what is it? Therefore. Therefore. In light of all that he said in verses 1 through 10 about Christ's superior work, he is the mediator of a new covenant. The author circles back to what he has already written in chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, 
Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. His ministry or his work is more excellent than the ministry of the Levitical priest because he he doesn't minister in an earthly tabernacle, but he has entered heaven itself where God is. He doesn't offer the repeated sacrifices of bulls and goats, but he has offered a once-for-all-time sacrifice in his own blood. And so he mediates a better covenant that is enacted on better promises. Um, A mediator is an arbitrator or a middleman between two parties. So in a legal dispute... A mediator negotiates with both sides to try and find a a peaceful resolution. They're the person that's in the middle. Sin has separated us us from a holy God. And what is needed is a mediator. Sinners cannot simply approach this holy God on their own. There's something that's needed because sin has, has caused this chasm between the people, and God. And and what we need is a go-between who can represent God to mankind and and can also represent mankind before God. In the Old Covenant, Moses was the mediator. You can see that very vividly in Exodus chapter uh, 19 as as Moses goes up the mountain to speak to God and then he comes down the mountain and he, he speaks the words of God to the people and then the people reply and he goes back up and talks to God. God says something. He has to come back down. And remember, Moses is 80 years old. Poor guy. But he's the mediator. He's the go-between. He speaks to the people on behalf of God and he speaks to God on behalf of the people. After Moses' death, the priests assumed the role of go-between. As they ministered in the tabernacle and later the temple, they, they represented the people before God in the tabernacle by offering sacrifices. And, and then they represented God to the people by teaching the people God's law. In the New Covenant, there is also a mediator. One who is superior to Moses and superior to the priest. Since he is both fully God and fully man, he can be the perfect mediator between the two parties. And he is able to be the superior mediator because he has also offered a superior sacrifice. And so Paul, writing in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, says, There is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The new covenant is through him and his work as mediator. But unlike Moses and the priest, Jesus mediates his covenant not through animal sacrifices, but by his own death. He is the mediator and the sacrifice. And that's really what we mean when we talk about the blood of Jesus. When we sing, there's power in the blood. When we, we sing that, that there's a fountain filled with blood and, and, and sinners who are plunged beneath that flood, or they lose all their guilty stains. We're not ascribing some magical property to this bodily fluid that's flowing through his veins. Don't think that. When we're singing, there's power in the blood. We're, we're, not, we're not simply talking about this magical power. Jesus was a human. And so we can imagine toddler Jesus still learning to walk who falls and scrapes his knee. 
Or, or teenager Jesus helping Joseph with some carpentry who cuts his hand. These natural occurrences where he may have bled were not the means by which he, he inaugurated the new covenant. The new covenant wasn't inaugurated the first time that Jesus bled. Just as the sacrificial lamb had to be slain on the altar, so Jesus had to be slain on the cross. He had to bleed to inaugurate the new covenant, but he had to bleed unto death. That's what we mean by his blood. When we sing about his blood, when we speak of his blood, when we talk about his blood, we're talking about his death. When we sing of his saving blood, we're, we're ultimately singing about his saving death for us on the cross. There's power in the blood of Jesus because there's power in his sacrificial death. And so he's the mediator and he's the sacrifice. He is the mediator of a new covenant. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He died to redeem. That's Exodus language. We saw that last week. As Israel was redeemed out of Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb painted over their doorpost. So the blood of a better sacrifice redeems sinners from bondage to sin. And as we saw last week in verse 12, this is an eternal redemption. So there's the clear statement. He is the mediator of a new covenant because of his death. But now we have to ask the question, why a bloody death? Why a bloody death? He's the mediator of a covenant because of his death, but why a death? Well, the first reason so that God's people will receive all the blessings is found in that purpose clause that's right in the middle of this verse. So that, there's, there's your, your purpose. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. His death, it did something. Now, what is this promised eternal inheritance? He, he died so that those who are called may receive it. What is it? Well, just like redemption is Exodus language, so is that word inheritance. It carries with it Exodus language. It's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. But primarily, it's in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Psalms. And in those places, it refers almost always to the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to their offspring. The land of promise, the land of Canaan, that was their inheritance. Joshua chapter 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel. Joshua 24, verse 28. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Psalm 105, verses 7 through 11 really explain it very clearly. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute 
to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. The land of Canaan, the promised land, equals inheritance. That's the Old Testament connotation of that word. The inheritance is the place that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and to their offspring. Under the Old Covenant, however, Israel's possession of the promised land or the possession of their inheritance was conditioned upon their obedience to the law. Um, Look over at Leviticus chapter 26 with me. Leviticus chapter 26. You guys read Leviticus so much, your Bible should practically fall open to Leviticus chapter 26, right? Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26. Look at verses 3 through 13. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, if you're obedient to the covenant, right? Then I will give you your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land and you shall lie down and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000 and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So if you obey the the covenant, if you obey the law, God will promise to, to bless the land and they will dwell in the land securely at peace. They'll be prosperous. That's the blessing for covenant faithfulness. But drop down to verse 14. But... If you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. Look over at verses 27 through 33. But if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury. And I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. And I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols. And my soul will abhor abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. And I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Blessings in the land for covenant obedience. 
cast out of the land in curses for covenant unfaithfulness. Central to these covenant curses was being expelled from the promised land. Adam was cast out of Eden for covenant disobedience. Israel simply repeats the story by being exiled from the land due to their sin. That's the story of Israel. That they're given the covenant, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. God brings them into the promised land unfaithful. And as the story goes, they're cast out of the land, exiled to the east. And therein lies the problem. Because as we read in chapter 8 of Hebrews, verses 7 through 9, the failure of the old covenant was really a failure of the people who broke it. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them. When he says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. They broke the covenant and thus they forfeited their inheritance. But for God to be true to his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the offspring of Abraham have to inherit the promises. But they can't because they can't obey. How are they going to inherit the promises? Not through the old covenant and the law, because that only brings curses to covenant breakers. They can only inherit the promises through the new covenant. This is why Christ died. He died to institute and mediate the new and better covenant. So that, it says here in verse 15, so that those who were called to receive these promises would. Since a death has occurred that redeemed them from their covenant breaking. Through his perfect life. Theologians call this the active obedience of Christ. He inherits all the blessings. But in his substitutionary death, the theologians call that his passive obedience. He has earned redemption from the covenant curses by becoming a curse himself. This is what he has done. We deserve the covenant curses. We deserve to be cut off from all of the promises and all of the inheritance that God has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Christ. But Christ has come and he has, by his perfect law keeping, earned the inheritance for his people. Just as Christ is a better mediator of a better covenant, the promises are better. The old covenant 
promised the nation of Israel a strip of land uh, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. But remember, the things of the Old Testament are actually pointing forward to something greater, something superior. And so the new covenant promises not just a strip of land, it promises a new heavens and a new earth to all those who are irresistibly called to receive them, both Jew and Gentile, since Jesus has died particularly for them to inherit them. This is good news. I don't know why you guys are so frowny this morning. This is good news. Christ has died so that you who are called to receive it would. Because a death has occurred that redeems who? It redeems them. Who's the them? Those who are called. So that they might receive this eternal inheritance. Verse 12 tells us it's an eternal redemption. One by Christ through, verse 14, the eternal spirit. Two, verse 15, an inter- eternal inheritance. This is what First Peter chapter 1 tells us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And not just some of the promises, all of them. All of them. All the, the, the promises of the new covenant have been won through the death of Christ. The law written on your hearts, won by Christ. The, the free, full, open access to God, won by Christ. The, knowing God, that intimate, personal relationship with God, won by the bloody death of Christ. Forgiveness of sins, won by Christ. The, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, won by Christ. Justification, reconciliation, adoption, sanctification, future glorification. All of the promises of God, won through the bloody death of Christ. How can we not sing of the blood? How can we not sing of the blood? Christ shed his blood on the cross to win for us all of the blessings promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that's just the first reason why Christ's bloody death was necessary. It was necessary to secure for you and for me and for all those who are called all of the blessings. All of the blessings. The inheritance. The promised eternal inheritance is yours because Christ has died. But look at verses 16 and 17. The second reason that that Christ's bloody death was necessary for the new covenant is so that sin's curses would be enforced. Now we come to a difficulty in these two verses. I'm not going to lie to you. These are difficult verses. The problem is with the word translated as will in the ESV. And it has divided commentators as much or even more so than the warning passage of chapter 6, if you can believe that. This is maybe the most difficult two verses in the entire book of Hebrews. 
One commentator sums it up by saying, you have but a choice of difficulties. And take what view you please, something will be left perplexed and unsatisfactory. That's super encouraging for a pastor who's (laughs) trying to figure out how he's going to teach this. Something is going to be left perplexed and unsatisfactory. So as I walk through this, if you feel perplexed, we're on the right track. The main idea in the verses, verses 16 and 17, is fairly clear. Christ has died because it was necessary. (laughs) But the question is, why? Why did he have to die? Look at your text. Let's let's read it, and then I'll I'll try to explain the difficulty and, and what position I take. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now again, the problem is with that word translated in the ESV and in the New International Version, and the Christian Standard Version, as a will. King James Version and the New King James Version translates it as testament. Um, The problem is it's the same word that's translated as covenant everywhere else in the book of Hebrews. The translation of the word as, as will or testament as in a last will and testament is the majority interpretation with most major Bible translations opting for that meaning as well as John Calvin, John Owen, Charles Spurgeon, John Gill, Matthew Henry, John MacArthur, et cetera, et cetera. You get the idea. If this is correct, if this, if this interpretation is correct, then the meaning should be fairly clear if you understand what a will is. A last will and testament only comes into effect when the one who made it has died since it is not in force so long as the one who made it or the testator, as long as the one who made the will is still alive. This interpretation is, is usually... Um, grabbed hold upon because in verse 15 it talks about the promised eternal inheritance. You get the inheritance after the person who made the will dies. A last will and testament is a legal document that expresses the desires of a person and their property after their their death. So the, the point would be that Jesus had to die. He was the testator who had to die in order that we would receive the inheritance. We would receive the promises that he has willed to us. Fair enough. However, sometimes I like to be a contrarian. I don't necessarily enjoy interpreting passages differently than John Calvin and Spurgeon and Gill and John MacArthur and all of them. Um, It actually makes me really uncomfortable. But we have to go where the text takes us. And I'm not convinced that the translation of the word as a will is the best. So, let's see if you can follow me. I'll, I'll try to, to be clear, but you're going to leave perplexed because that's what the commentator said you would be. Um, the word, the Greek word, is diatheki. Now, write that down because there's going to be a quiz at the end. The word diatheki is found 33 times in the New Testament. Out of those 33 times, it's used 17 times in Hebrews. So Hebrews is is packed with this word. It's also in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, close to 300 times. Out of all of those instances, 
the only time that that word would mean something like a last will and testament would be in these two verses. Maybe in Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 and 17, maybe. But even there, it's, it's strongly contested. Now, of course, it's possible that the author is using a play on words here. So taking the word that normally means covenant, but could also be translated as a will, and he's making this word play to, to make a point. And I, that's certainly possible. But I believe we can legitimately question whether switching between the meanings of a word in the space of two verses is likely. Um, as one commentator put it, one must question if the pastor would use such wordplay at the expense of the conceptual unity that pervades his sermon. In other words, it always means covenant until these two verses, and then all of a sudden he's switching the meaning of the word for two verses, and then in the next verse he switches back. We have to at least question, is that a good way to communicate what's going on? Is, is it likely that he's doing that? There's also the tight grammatical flow throughout the passage, and and we're not good at this. We're not good at paying attention to grammar because most of us didn't like grammar in school. Um, but you have to pay attention to the grammar. And, and there's a tight grammatical flow through this passage that, that makes the, the, the Testament argument difficult to understand. He, he uses transitional words like for, verse 16, for where a will is involved. For, he's drawing on verse 15, which is talking about a covenant in verse 18, he says, therefore, therefore, just as the first covenant, well, he's just been talking about a will, so why is he using the word therefore? The author speaks of Jesus as mediator of a covenant in verse 15. He continues his argument for a covenant in verse 18. Why not translate the word as covenant in verses 16 and 17 also? We've already seen in verse 15 that the word inheritance has a covenantal context. The inheritance goes back to the old covenant where the inheritance was for covenant obedience. The message of the book itself is to, sh to show the superiority of Christ to the old covenant institutions. We are in a portion of the book that is specifically juxtaposing the old and the new covenants. The verses surrounding 16 and 17 are about covenants. I think it's best to follow the New American Standard and the Legacy Standard Bibles by consistently translating this word as covenant throughout the entire passage. I think that verses 16 and 17, where you see the word a will, I think that it should be translated a covenant. I hope you're following me. But if you're not, I understand. <laughs> I sympathize with you. But just stick with me. Stick with me for, for just a second. That's my argument for why I think the word will should be translated as covenant. So let me read it again. For where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a covenant takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. All right, so if I'm correct in the translation of the word, how should we then interpret these two verses? Because there's still difficulties, just as 
we, sh- we are supposed to be anticipating. There are still difficulties even in translating it as a covenant. And more important for the point of, of the, the entirety of, of this passage, how does it help to answer why Jesus had to die a bloody death? That's the question that we're trying to answer. Why does Jesus have to die? Verse 15, it's so that God's people would inherit the promises. Verses 16 and 17, I think that the purpose is so that the curses of sin would be enforced. Where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it, that's one word in, in Greek, the covenant maker, must be established, which is another difficult word. It literally means must be brought in, or it must be carried, or it must be born. Where there's a covenant, the death of the covenant maker must be brought in. What does that mean? (laughs) Why or how is the death of the covenant maker brought in, or carried, or born? Well, I think in order to understand this, We really need to know more about Old Testament covenants. So two instances we need to look at. The first is found in Genesis chapter 15. And the second one is found in Jeremiah chapter 34. So Genesis chapter 15 and Jeremiah chapter 34. You're going to want to to mark both of those. Even if you don't get to it while I'm reading it, you'll want to go back and maybe look at those later. Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 through 21. It says, And he said to him, the angel of the Lord, says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. The land, again, connections. The land is an inheritance. I've given you this land. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So, God promises the land as an inheritance, Abram says, how am I supposed to know? Verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half. This would have been down the middle. He cuts them all the way down from top to bottom, spreads them out. He cuts them in half and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right, let's look over at Jeremiah chapter 34. Jeremiah chapter 34. Verses 8 through 20. 
the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to make a proclamation of liberty to them, that everyone should set free as Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew, his brother. And they obeyed all the officials and all the people who had entered into the covenant that everyone would set free his slave, male or female, so that they would not be enslaved again. They obeyed and set them free. But afterward, they turned around and took back the male and female slaves they had set free and brought them into subjection as slaves. So um, the king has made a covenant with the people. Set all your Hebrew slaves free. And they agree to the covenant. They set their slaves free, but later on they decide, nah, we're going to take them back. And so they break the covenant. They recapture their slaves. Now look at verse 12. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying, at the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrews who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. You recently repented and did what was right in my eyes by proclaiming liberty, each to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house that is called by my name. But then you turned around and profaned my name when each of you took back his male and female slaves, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your slaves. Therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. All right. The covenant was taking a calf and cutting it in two and laying the sides side by side, and then walking between the pieces. And what's being proclaimed as they walk between the pieces is, may the same thing be done to me that was done to this animal if I break the covenant. Which is very significant. We don't have time to talk about it, but it's especially significant that God walks through the pieces alone in Genesis 15. The sacrificed animal stands in the place of the one making the covenant. It's a symbol. I cut this. I walk between it. I'm saying, may this be done to me if I break this covenant. Where a covenant is involved, the death of the covenant maker must be brought in or must be born there is a representative slain as a testimony to the seriousness of the oath that's being made. Um, In theological terms, this is called a self-maledictory oath. So you wouldn't enter into such an agreement lightly. You wouldn't walk between the pieces saying, may I be cut in half if I break this covenant? You wouldn't do that lightly, unlike the Israelites did in Jeremiah chapter 34. So what happens when a covenant is broken? What happens when a covenant is broken? If if the the animal is brought in and it is slain as a a picture of what will happen to the, the covenant breaker, what happens when a covenant is broken? 
Well, that's the thrust of verse 17. Verse 17, a covenant takes effect only at death. That literally means a covenant is confirmed over dead things. That's the literal Greek. I.e. over the sacrificed animals. A, A covenant is confirmed over dead animals. Since the covenant is not in force or it's not strong as long as the covenant maker is still alive. Blessings for covenant obedience. Curses for covenant disobedience. God is always faithful to his covenant. Whether it's blessing or curse, God enforces his covenant. And the author of Hebrews isn't thinking about just covenants in general. Verses 18 through 22 tell us what covenant he's thinking about. He's not thinking about the Noahic covenant or the Davidic covenant. He's not thinking about this covenant in Jeremiah chapter 34. He's thinking about the old covenant. He's thinking about the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai. In other words, the author is again thinking about a weak covenant that was broken. It was broken. He's not thinking about these other covenants. He's thinking particularly about this broken covenant at Mount Sinai. What are the consequences of a broken covenant? The promised curse. Death. That's the consequence. If you break the covenant, I'm killing this animal. It's standing in my place. And I'm saying over this dead body, may the same thing be done to me if I break this covenant. It's what the sacrifice threatened. It's what a broken covenant deserves. If the threatened punishment isn't enforced, then the covenant isn't strong. It's not, it's not in force. If I were to tell my kids, clean up your rooms. And if you don't, no going outside to play, no TV, nothing fun until you clean your room. But they fail to obey. And I go into their room and it's a disaster as I'm sure it probably is right now. And I still let them go do fun things and I ignore their messy rooms. My threat wouldn't be strong. We, we call that an empty threat, right? If I did this consistently, my kids would eventually catch on. <laughs> and they would learn that dad's all bark and no bite. His threats aren't serious, so we can do whatever we want and our rooms can look like lot and dumb, which they probably do right now. However, if I enforce the consequences of disobedience, my kids will know that the threat is real. They'll know to take it seriously. So the old covenant, the sacrifice threatens death for covenant breaking, but it's not strong until the punishment for actual disobedience is carried out. The wages of sin is death. A death is owed for covenant unfaithfulness. A death must be paid. That's why Jesus died. Now, if you've stuck with me, I commend your patience. (laughs) 
If you're still a little confused, take heart. I had to read over 20 commentaries to even come close to explaining this. And even now, I'm along with, uh, with the commentator. Um, we have a, but a choice of difficulties. And take either view. Something will be left perplexed and unsatisfactory. But let me see if I can, I can summarize and get to the, the main point. If you take the the last will and testament interpretation, then verses 16 through 17, they they strengthen the point made in verse 15 that Jesus died so that his people would receive all of the blessings, all of the promised eternal inheritance. That's, That's the meaning if you take the last will and testament. If you take the covenant view, then we are reminded that Christ died not only to win us blessings, but also so that we would be set free from all of the condemnation of our sin and rebellion. He died not just so we would receive the blessings, but so that we would be set free from the curses. Because the covenant is made over dead things, and the covenant has been broken, and death is owed, and Jesus died so that that death would be enforced. And since he died... You don't have to. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Where a covenant is involved, the death of the one making the covenant must be carried by a sacrificial animal. For a covenant is confirmed over dead bodies. Since the covenant is not strong as long as a covenant breaker is still alive. And there's the necessity for Christ's bloody death. Israel broke the covenant. They brought the covenant curses upon themselves by rebelling against God. And so God has to carry out the punishment. But he's also promised to Abraham that his offspring would inherit the blessings. How can can both things be true? How can they inherit blessings and also suffer the consequences of breaking their covenant? What can be done to solve this dilemma? Christ dies under the curse of the law. He dies under the curse of the law. But he does it not for his own sin, but for the sins of his people. Isaiah chapter 53, which is probably in the mind of the author of Hebrews when he says that where a covenant is involved, the death of the covenant maker must be born. Because Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's the representative. Not an animal sacrifice. No longer cutting a, a, a calf in two and walking between the pieces. Christ is the representative. He is the one that died a bloody death. The necessity of a bloody sacrifice is because we have each earned a bloody death. But instead of God carrying out the curse on us, he gave his son who experienced all of the curses of the law on the cross so that we who trust in him 
would inherit the blessings. A death has occurred that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. These verses, they tell us all about the holiness of God. They tell us all about the seriousness of sin, of God's boundless love and grace for us in Christ. Why wouldn't we speak of the blood? Why wouldn't we sing of the blood? It was the blood that was shed in our place. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. He died so that sin's curse would be enforced, not on us, but on him. The final reason why Jesus' bloody death was necessary for the new covenant is so that the law would be fulfilled. He died so that the law would be fulfilled. And by fulfilled, I, I mean in the sense of bringing to completeness or reaching the goal. He died so that all the things that the old covenant, all the things that the law foretold would come to their intended goal. Look at verses 18 through 22. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Throughout Hebrews, the author has drawn comparisons between the Old Covenant and the New. The Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is no different. A bloody sacrifice instituted the Old Covenant. Israel should have anticipated a bloody sacrifice to institute the promised New Covenant. He references back to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. Moses receives the law on Mount Sinai and he comes down and he reads it. He reads it to the people. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They enter into the covenant, right? And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt, sac- burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. They enter into this covenant with God over dead bodies. The bodies represent the people. And they're saying, may the same thing be done to us if we don't keep the words of the covenant. Bad news. (laughs) Bad news for Israel. Um, Because just a couple of chapters later, they're having a good time breaking the covenant. Um, And 
the covenant curses are hanging over their head. Moses reads the law. He reads the terms of the covenant. Israel responds, Israel responds that they will keep the covenant. Moses sprinkles the blood from the sacrificial animals on the book of the covenant, on the tabernacle and all the utensils of worship, and on the people. Verses 18 through 22 in, in Hebrews chapter 9 is actually a chiasm. It's, it's where the first and the last verses are mirroring each other, and it, it, it's emphasizing the central thought. The center of this chiasm is found in verse 20. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded me for you. Which, interestingly enough, is exactly what Jesus says in the upper room as he institutes the new covenant with his disciples. The blood of the covenant under the old covenant was done with animal sacrifices. The blood of the new covenant instituted by the blood of Christ. Under the law, with all of its weaknesses, almost everything is purified by blood. Verse 22. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. He, he sprinkles the blood against the altar and against the book of the covenant, against the tabernacle and everything in the tabernacle and on the people. Everything is covered in blood. And yet the law is filled with weaknesses because of the people. Because the people, the, the people are weak. The people fail. The people rebel and sin and they, they bring upon themselves the covenant curses. And yet everything under the Old Covenant is covered in blood. If that's the case under the Old Covenant, which was but a shadow, how much more would this be the case under the New Covenant? We'll explore that line of thought a little bit more next week. But the experience of Israel under the Old Covenant communicated with a bullhorn without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Israel was reminded of this daily and yearly through the multitude of animal sacrifices, this, this doctrine was made abundantly clear to them. Blood has to be shed in order for sins to be forgiven. How much clearer should it be for us? My sin deserves a bloody, violent death. Your sins deserve a violent bloody death. God told Adam on the day you eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. He ate and we have all been plunged into lives of sin and misery that culminate in death. The death warrant is hanging over every one of us. You cannot escape the just vengeance and righteous judgment of a holy God against whom you have committed treason. The entire Old Covenant is a reminder of this. But God has sent His Son to fulfill the law by dying accursed under the law. He died as mediator to bring us to God. And if there was another way, wouldn't God have done it? If there was another way, wouldn't God have spared His Son? Jesus prayed in the garden in agony, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. 
God loves his son. His son is always heard. His prayers are always heard. If there was, if there was any other way, if it were at all possible, don't you think, that God would have rescued Jesus from this violent death? That Christ died on the cross is proof that it was the only way. Jay can't be the only one who gets to make Marvel references up here. Dr. Strange, he saw 14,605,000 possible outcomes to their fight with Thanos. And how many did they win? One, right? One. There is only one way that sin can be forgiven. The bloody death of Christ. Fallen man may postulate various ways in which God could have done it better our way. But there is only one way. Your sin is so heinous that you deserve to die under the wrath of God. Your sin is so heinous that only blood can cover it. But the blood of bulls and goats, they simply won't do it because you are not a bull or a goat. A death is owed. A death must be paid. And there is only one who can pay it. The Lord Jesus, who fulfilled the law. He brought it to its intended goal, to its purposed end. Who died for our sins so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. The law the Old Covenant, with its tabernacle, its priests, its rituals and sacrifices were a large, flashing neon sign all over the Old Testament pointing us to Jesus and his cross. And he died a bloody death on the cross to bring all of these promises to reality. This helps us to read our Bibles. It helps us to, to read our Old Testament What do we do when we come to difficult places in the Old Testament where it's just covered in blood? Remember that it's pointing us to Christ. Israel should have have taken notice that under the Old Covenant, almost everything is covered in blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In order for the promises of the New Covenant, that the sins of the people would be fully and finally and definitively forgiven, there has to be blood. And these promises are so superior to the promises of the old covenant that a superior blood sacrifice has to be made. It is the Lord Jesus. His bloody death was absolutely necessary for the new covenant so that God's people would receive all of the blessings so that sin's curses would be enforced, so that the law would be fulfilled. You'd better believe that we're obsessed with blood. We are obsessed with blood because blood is our only hope. And only the blood of Christ shed for us as He died for us on the cross can truly redeem. So yes, we love to sing of His precious blood. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through His infinite mercy. His child and forever I am. Redeemed 
redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, redeemed, his child and forever I am. And we want you to sing with us. If you're here and you've never trusted in the death of Christ in your place, it's your only hope. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Not your good works, not your acts of charity or acts of piety, only blood. Turn from your sins. Run to Christ. His death on the cross atones for every sin. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood can cleanse you from every sin. Christ's blood covers every stain of guilt, every heinous act. Christ's blood is our only hope. Come, bathe in the blood of Christ. Be forgiven of your sins. Though your sins be as scarlet, He will wash you white as snow. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the blood of Christ. There's no hope without the shed blood of Jesus God, I pray that your people will take renewed comfort and and renewed encouragement and strength and, and that they will sing again of the hope that we have in the powerful, powerful blood of Christ. That Jesus has paid it all. The sin, it left a crimson stain, but Jesus' blood washes us white as snow. And God, I pray for those here who still have yet to turn to Christ. God, I pray Your Spirit would open their eyes to see that their only hope is in the blood. That without the shedding of blood, there is no hope. There is no forgiveness of sins. That You have loved us. You have given us Your Son. His death on the cross truly atones for all of our sins. I pray that they will know that. I pray that everyone in here will know that. And God, may we be faithful to sing of the blood, to tell others of the blood, to take hope in the blood. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.